You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Have you ever experienced what is called the dark night of the soul? The dark night of the soul can be defined like this, as a period of utter spiritual desolation, disconnection, disorientation, Emptiness in which you feel totally separated from God. A time when you feel completely lost, hopeless and consumed with melancholy. Have you been there? I have. But maybe as we begin this time together, you say, but Andrew, what we don't need right now in 2020 is the dark night of the soul. What we need now is is positivity and, and encouragement. We don't need lamentations. But this dark night of the soul, this period of lamentation, this also is authentic Christian experience. And we need to look at it. We need to experience it. Why? Because I know that some of you right now, for you, this is your experience, the dark night of the soul. And you need comfort. 
And I also know that for others of you, right now you don't experience it, but you will. And you need to be ready. So I want to pray as we come to Psalm 88 together. Would you pray with me, for me? Let's pray. Father, now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this psalm is attributed to a man called Heman. We know next to nothing about Heman, and we don't know, need to know anything more than we know about Heman because we know that this man is suffering. He's suffering in a number of interconnected ways, three of them at least. Firstly, his soul is suffering. He tells us in verse 3, he says, For my soul is full of troubles. His soul, the the innermost part of him, the essence of who he is, is like a a storm-tossed ocean. We're not told why this is so in his soul. It could be any number of reasons. Maybe it's crippling doubts about God. They come, don't they? I was walking with a friend the other day who's not a Christian, and we were talking about doubting the existence of God. And I said, I don't doubt the existence of God, but sometimes I doubt if he's good. Or maybe it's the opposition of those who seem to mock God around us and get away with it with impunity. Or maybe it's the society where it feels like the foundations are being undermined and collapsing. And and we ask with the scripture, when the, the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Or maybe it's someone that we see and we experience the agonizing soul pain of watching them slip slowly away from the faith which they once proudly professed into total abandonment, denying the faith that they once loved. Whatever it is, and we don't know, human soul is suffering. It's full of troubles. But secondly, it's not just his soul, his body is also suffering. Verses 3 to 5, he says this, And my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. Heman, it seems, is is physically suffering so much so that he says his life itself is drawing near to the grave. Once again, we we don't know what is causing this. We just know in verse 15, he says, I'm afflicted and I'm close to death. So bad, he says, that it's like I'm being led to lie with the corpses, descending into an open grave. There are many of us, in, particularly in our church, City on a Hill, who are young, the bodies work flawlessly. But even for the young, physical pain is not unknown. And as you age and become older, it becomes inevitable. And there are some now who know very well how debilitating physical pain and illness can be, how it impacts the soul, the dark night of the soul that we can feel. There's soul pain, soul disturbance, there's physical pain, but there's a third area of pain which is no less severe. Heman speaks of it in verse 8. Listen to this. You have caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. 
And again in verse 18, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. You know what this pain he is describing is, don't you? It's relational pain. It's relational stress. It's relational separation. He says, my beloved shuns me. Maybe that is his wife. Maybe she wants nothing to do with him. His closest friends are pushing him away. In his physical suffering and his soul disturbance, he comes for human warmth and comfort and there's nothing. He's pushed away. And there's some here that for you right now, this is your reality. You experience the pain and the anguish of relational separation and stress. These things comprise the dark night of the soul. And in Psalm 88, Heman is right there. And if that's your reality now, maybe you could say with him in verse 8, I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Heman is suffering the dark night of the soul. And if this is you, I want you to see now it's reality, and I want you to see comfort. And this, if this is not yet you, I want you to be prepared. So let's look at some things together which I trust, believe, hope, and have prayed that you will find authentic and real and helpful. A few things. Firstly, I want to say something to you that may sound surprising, but it's true. If you are experiencing the dark night of the soul right now, there is nothing wrong with you. And there is nothing wrong with your faith. If you believed uh, the fairy tale that when you come to Jesus, the rest of your life will always be sweet. Let me define that. If you believed the fairy tale that you will never again suffer physically, that all of your relationships will be constantly harmonious. If you believe that, that God will always seem close to you, If you've believed these things, then if you go into the dark night of the soul, you have a problem. Something is very wrong. Uh, Let me give you an illustration. Let's say, and let's hope this is true, that a a vaccine is discovered for COVID-19. And let's say that you go to the doctor and you receive the vaccine. And then a few weeks later or a few months later, you encounter someone who has COVID-19. You're in close contact with them. And then a few days later, you start to feel unwell. You go and are tested and the test comes back positive. You have coronavirus. Now, I imagine you would say, what? I was inoculated. I was vaccinated. How can I possibly be sick? What is wrong? What is, what is happening? But let's flip it for a moment. Let's say that you didn't have a vaccination and it turned out through your app or whatever it is that you'd been in very close contact with someone that did have COVID-19, would you be surprised if you started to feel the fever and the sore throat? Would you be surprised if you were actually diagnosed with COVID-19? Of course you wouldn't. You'd expect it to be the case. And this is true with the Christian experience. If you expect that you will never suffer and you do, you go into the dark night of the soul, it can unwind you. But if you know your scriptures and you know the history of the saints over generations, over millennia, you know that suffering, that the dark night of the soul 
is part of the Christian experience. It's part of authentic Christianity. Jesus himself said to us, he said, in this world, promise you, you'll have troubles. In Psalm 23, which we'll look at in in a couple of weeks' time, David says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Christian people, authentic God people have walked through the valley of the shadow of death. They've experienced the dark night of the soul. And if that's you right now, there is nothing wrong with you. Your faith is not defective. Thank you, Heman, the Ezraite, for normalizing the dark night of the soul as you recorded what you felt in Psalm 88. But secondly, and this is more practically, When you are in the dark night of the soul, can I ask you, where do you go? Where do you go? This is a hugely important question. Where do you go? Because there are a number of options you can choose when you're in the dark night of the soul. There's a number of of areas that look as if they're going to provide a a glimmer of light to get out of that darkness. And who, who wants to stay there? Everyone wants to get out. And some of these these exits, some of these avenues are good. They're they're God-given. Others are not. So, for example, some some good ones are if you are soul-sick, if you're having doubts about God, don't hold them in. Go to a trusted Christian friend. Go to your pastor. Go to someone in the staff of your church. Talk to them about it. That's a good way, a a God-ordained way of of navigating it. Maybe you're experiencing relational stress and dislocation. Well, we'll go to a marriage counsellor if it's a marriage. Go go to a relational counsellor to help maybe bring reconciliation, a mediator. If you are experiencing um, physical pain, well, go to the doctor. If you're you're experiencing mental anguish, go to a psychologist. These are good places to run when you're in the dark night of the soul. But there are other exits which seem to show a glimmer of light, but in the end are traps and dead ends. And there are many of these. And usually these exits come about because we think, I am suffering right now. I'm in the dark night of the soul and I deserve to sin. God, you owe me to let me sin. And these are many and varied, but they can be running to the arms of another person for an illicit relationship to find comfort. They can be um, running to alcohol or to drugs or to pornography to, to deaden the pain. They can be very often in our culture running to materialism, buying the new shiny thing that will bring just a little bit of light, even though we know it will be only for a little time or even worse, to self-pity and self-loathing, dead-end traps that in the end lead ultimately towards thoughts of self-harm and even suicide. None of these avenues, neither good nor bad, actually provide, though, the real solution to the dark night of the soul. And Psalm 88 gives us that real solution, although it's one that we might not like to see. Let's look at what the solution is. Because the psalmist doesn't deal with the symptoms of the problems, either positively or negatively, by chasing those exits. He goes to the source. And the source for the psalmist, for the source for Heman in Psalm 88, is deeply disturbing. Do, Do you know what the source of all his problems are as you read the psalm? I think as you heard it read and as you have it open before you now, it's pretty clear what the source of the problem is. 
You can't read this psalm and many others without knowing what the psalmist thinks is the problem. Verse 6, you, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Your wrath, verse 16, has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. For Heman, the, the ultimate source of his pain is God himself. Time and again, the psalmist makes this clear. God has done it. God is responsible. God, this is your problem. This runs very much against what is often our approach when we are in the dark night of the soul. Our approach often is to say, God, I I'm, I'm thank you that you're with me, that, that you're walking alongside me. Um, this is coming to me because of evil, evil people and because of sins against me and for maybe things that I've done myself. Um, and, and you would love to take me out of this, but you can't. Because you can't. You're not in control of this. Now, that, that can be vaguely comforting. But it's just not true. For Heman, it is not true. Now, I know it's a complex theological issue. It's a can of worms, but you cannot deny that for Heman, he goes to the source and he goes to none of these things. He says, you, you, God. Now, God does not sin. God does not do evil. But Heman certainly believes that it is God who has placed him in this moment of the dark night of the soul. So Heman goes to the source of the problem itself. He goes to God. Three times in this psalm specifically, he says he goes to God, verses 1, 9, and 13. But the whole psalm, every word of it, is a prayer. It's it's a cry. It's a dialogue with God himself. As the dark night of the soul presses on him in Psalm 88, Heman goes to the only source, the source of the problem and the only source of the solution. He goes to God himself. And I want you to notice carefully how he does it. How does God, how does Heman go to God? And as you look at the way he goes, let it shock us out of our false sense of piety because Heman unleashes on God, doesn't he? There are no platitudes here. This is authentic, raw relationship. It's as if Heman is the prosecuting, prosecuting attorney. God is in the dock on the defensive and, and Heman is leveling with him time and again, saying, you, 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 you're guilty here. And, and maybe when we hear this, we think, that's blasphemy. How can we speak about God, the creator of the universe like that? It's blasphemy. No. This is not blasphemy. This is in the scriptures because it is a divinely approved way to speak to your creator. Let me ask another question. How do you speak to God normally? By that, I mean, how do you pray? That's what it is, speaking, talking with God, listening to him. How do you speak to him normally when things are going well, maybe in any other year besides 2020? Not like this, I bet. No, I don't. When things are going well. Walter Brueggemann's a theologian and he, he, he nailed it. He said this, 
Such prayer as we get in Psalm 88 is intense. It's dangerous and urgent. It moves deeply beneath our usual innocuous prayer in which nothing is at stake. Because in this kind of prayer, everything is at stake. David Taylor says it like this. It is yet again evidence of the kind of visceral honesty that belongs in the place of faithful worship. This is no faithless cry against the Almighty. This is not the attack of an atheist. This is the wrestling out of faith in the presence of the Lord. For the psalmist, there is no civilized speech. There's no stiff upper lip or quiet resignation. There is only more intense address before the face of God. In the end, to ignore these words or to choose more polite words is to believe that God cannot handle our broken humanity. It's to believe that God has forgotten how we are made. But God has not forgotten. God has not run out of compassion. What a great quote. God knows our broken humanity. God knows what it is to be in the dark night of the soul. He has not forgotten. His compassions haven't run out. And I'm going to come to that in just a moment. But let's linger just for one more minute in Psalm 88. For the truth is, in Psalm 88 itself, if we take only this psalm, there's a cry, there's anguished expression and crying out to the Almighty, but it's a monologue. There is no answer. God does not respond to him. He cries out from the depths of his heart and he gets Silence. God is distant. He does not reply. The psalm ends as it began in total darkness. Or you might say, well, what use is that kind of God? In the dark night of the soul, when I need God most, when I cry out in anguish and physical suffering and in relational stress, when, I, when I'm in the, in the des- place of desperation, I call out to God and, and there's silence. Psalm 88 tells us sometimes God does stay silent. There are times in authentic Christian walk and life, and maybe that's your reality right now. You cry out and you hear nothing in response. Psalm 88 says, you're not the first and you will not be the last. But we also know that while this is a true word, it's not the last word. Oh no, this is not the last word. Because while you may not feel it, this psalm goes in the whole canon of scripture, the Bible given to us by God. And we know that Psalm 88 is expressing one valid experience as we walk with God. It's expressing lamentation. But we know from the rest of the scripture and from the rest of the Psalms that God is still working. This time will pass and God is working in the midst of the the dark night of the soul, even when you don't feel it. St. John of the Cross was a theologian who lived about 400 years ago. He coined the term actually, the dark night of the soul. He wrote these words, and they're comforting. In the dark night of the soul, 
bright flows the river of God. Scripture tells us that weeping can endure for a night. And the night can seem long and dark. But it also tells us that joy comes in the morning. In my time, in the dark night of the soul that I have experienced over the years, I've cried out to God with those promises I find in Scripture. He'll never leave me or forsake me. That he's working even in the midst of the brokenness. That when I pray to him and seem to get no response, it's not because he's not listening. It's just because he's not answering. And those words have seemed to me to be empty. Meaningless, just whistling into the dark. But these words, this prayer of Heman in Psalm 88, it's not empty. It's not meaningless. This is faith. This is faith. This is believing in the reality of the things that we don't see right now. This is what God calls of us. He says, without faith, we will not see God. We cannot please God. And when we cry out to God in these moments, we say, God, I trust you. You seem to be silent, but I trust you. And faith believes that this time will pass, that the dark night will end, that the morning is coming. As I conclude, um, there's a cemetery quite close to our house in our suburb in Geelong. Uh, it's been a, a favourite spot for me to walk during lockdown. It's just down the end of our street. And in that cemetery, my great, great, great grandmother and grandfather are buried. And I go there to walk because it's been quiet. It's been peaceful. But it's also pretty depressing. <laughs> Cemeteries tend to have that effect on people. And I find the newer parts of the cemetery are particularly depressing. Because as I go, I, I read the little inscribed epitaphs on the, on the headstones. And in the newer part of the cemetery, I see the, the reality and the authentic expression of grief and sorrow and the dark night of the soul very clearly. I see it recorded in grave after grave, the suffering that's real, the separation, the anguish. But why I find it depressing is because while it, it documents so authentically the reality of the problem, it does nothing except offer platitudes in terms of a solution. Maybe you've seen it, but in this cemetery, I see one woman who, her whole epitaph is about how much she loved the Geelong Cats football team. There's another man and how much he did for community service in Rotary. They're not bad things, but that's what came onto his grave. And most of them, though, most of them, what is expressed on those graves is the fact that the, the dead one, the deceased one lying in the grave is, lives on in the memories of those who loved him or her. And yet statistically we know that graves are only visited on average for the first five years. They're empty platitudes, they're meaningless. And, and as I walk, I, I go past a, a funeral plot, a grave, where I did the funeral a number of years ago. And I stood there over the open grave with the family gathered around and I, and I dropped the dirt in, the first handful of dirt onto the coffin. I said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And at that moment, uh, a woman, the daughter, I think of the woman I was burying, screamed out and said, no, 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 and ran screaming from the graveside. It, it's a depressing place. But then I move into the older parts of the cemetery. And they've got a different feel. Just a few weeks ago, I found a, a new grave I'd never seen before. 
There's a grave from a woman who, who died in the 1880s. And on her grave is simply two sentences. It says this. These were her last words. Jesus, you've come. Just that. These were her last words. Jesus, you've come. So significant. I don't know what that woman's life was like. I don't know how difficult her life was. I don't know if she went through the dark night of the soul. I do know that she came through the darkness of death. And as that final darkness closed on him, on, in on her, a darkness even more so than Psalm 88. In that moment, she saw, she saw the light. And she cried out with her very last words on earth, Jesus, you've come. The man of suffering, one acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces. Jesus, the one who knew very well what it was to experience soul grief. In the garden the night before crying out, please. Jesus, who knew what it was to feel physical agony from a body that was broken and pierced. Jesus, who knew very well what it was to be rejected, to have relationships ripped apart as his friends denied they even knew him and another one betrayed him. And worst of all, as he hung on the cross, his own beloved father, and he cried out, Eli, 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 lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, the man of sorrows, Jesus, you've come, she said. Psalm 88 doesn't end with neat, tied-off sentiments like we'd probably like, but it gives us a hint of the answer. John Stott, the author, pastor, and theologian, speaks about suffering in these words. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectful before the statue of the Buddha, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in light of his. There's still a question mark against human suffering. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross. 
which symbolizes divine suffering. Your good father, he stands sovereign over whatever suffering you're experiencing. If right now you are in the dark night of the soul, he loves you. He holds everything in his hands. This is not a surprise to him. This suffering that you experience, the suffering even of crying out to God and hearing only silence. It may be prolonged. It may last for the the duration of the night. But the dawn is coming. The darkness will end. You too will one day say, Jesus, you've come. And even right now, the the dawn is touching the darkness in the east. The first light is already gilding the sky. In just a moment, compared with eternity, in just a moment, that sun will rise. Its light will shine into the dark night of the soul. Psalm 88 will itself be transformed into a beautiful, glittering, shining memory. And in it, you will see God's faithfulness. You will see God's hand. If you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, you will say, Jesus, you've come. I want to pray as we close our time. Father God, you put us in this world and sometimes darkness is real. Lord, help us to, in that experience, to know that we're not alone. We're not the first. Help us, Lord, in this experience of darkness to press into you, to cry out to you, to be real with you, knowing that you want our hearts, you don't want our words. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of it, no matter how dark it is, and specifically for someone listening now, it seems so dark, we pray for that person. We pray, Lord, that they would know your comfort, that, Jesus, you would indeed come. And we pray this confident that you hear it, knowing that you will answer it because we ask it in faith in the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and resurrected Saviour. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.